in our Northern Hemisphere, we're enjoying in this beautiful bursting season of the year one of the great reoccurring miracles of nature, the regeneration and renewal of the earth that we call spring. There may be a few wintry days left, but the sun has become its begun its vernal return. The buds are appearing on the flowers and trees, and luxuriant greenery is sprouting to the surface. How fitting that just one week ago all of Christendom celebrated on Eastern Day, Easter Day the great restoring and renewing resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, declaring all of the joy and eternal promise that event holds for mankind. With you I welcome this season of the year, which reminds us that God is a God of miracles, that His only begotten Son is the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in him, though he were dead, yet shall he live. In this beautiful time of the year, we remember that death has no sting and the grave has no dominion. I testify after every winter season, there is the miracle of springtime ahead in our personal journey through life as well as in nature. These restorations and renewals are a gift from the Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate man for all seasons. I wish to speak briefly of some of those divine moments in our lives where the Savior reaches out to redeem and to make whole and strengthen us. The psalmist has written, I cried unto God with my voice, and he gave ear unto me. And I said, This is my infirmity, but I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. Thou art the God that doest wonders. Thou hast declared thy strength among the people. Among the signs of the true Church and included in the evidences of God's work in the world are the manifestations of His power which we are helpless to explain or to fully understand. In the scriptures, these divine acts and special blessings are variously referred to as miracles or signs or wonders or marvels. Not surprisingly, these signs and marvels were most evident in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, the very Son of God Himself. But startling and wonder-filled as they were, Christ's many miracles were only reflections of those 
greater miracles, which his father had performed before him and continues to perform all around us. Indeed, the Savior's humble performance of such obviously divine acts may be just one very special application of the declaration he made, The Son can do nothing of himself but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me. For example, the first miracle by Jesus recorded in the New Testament was the turning of water into wine at the marriage at Cana. But poor indeed was the making of the wine in the pots of stone compared with the original making in the beauty of the vine and the abundance of the swelling grapes. No one could explain the one-time miracle at the wedding feast, but then neither could they explain the everyday miracle of the splendor of the vineyard itself. It is most remarkable to witness one who is deaf made to hear again. But surely that great blessing is no more startling than the wondrous combination of bones and skin and nerves that let our ears receive the beautiful world of sound. Should we not stand in awe of the blessing of hearing and give glory to God for that miracle, even as we do when hearing was restored after it has been lost. It is not the same for, for the return of one's sight or the utterance of our speech or even that greatest miracle of all, the restoration of life. The original creations of the Father constitute a truly wonder-filled world. Are not the greatest miracles the fact that we have life and limb and sight and speech in the first place? Yes, there will always be plenty of miracles if we have eyes to see and ears to hear. Just one other reminder. Once we start to recognize the many miraculous and blessed manifestations of God and Christ in our lives, the everyday variety The everyday variety as well as restored sight to the blind and restored hearing to the deaf. We may be truly bewildered at the unexplainable principles and processes that bring about such wonders. In the contemplation of miracles, 
We must of necessity recognize the operation of a power transcending our present human understanding," wrote Dr. James E. Talmage, who is both a scientist and an apostle of the Lord, had uniquely strong qualifications for examining such phenomena. Science and the unaided human mind, he said, have not advanced far enough to analyze and explain these wonders. But he cautioned to deny the reality of miracles on the ground that the results and manifestations must be fictitious simply because we cannot comprehend the means by which they have happened is arrogant on the face of it. Indeed, those who have been the beneficiaries of such miracles are the most compelling witnesses of all. It is hard to argue with results. Consider this simple but telling account from the Savior's ministry to make manifest the works of God in men's lives. One Sabbath day, Jesus anointed the eyes of a man blind from birth, and the man's eyesight was restored. It was a startling and inspiring manifestation. Unfortunately, however, some who learned of it would not require that one of the local citizens had his vision returned. Therefore said some of the Pharisees, This man, meaning Jesus, is not of God, because he keepeth not the Sabbath day. Others said, How can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? And there was a division among them, the scriptures tell us. With such a controversy inside their ranks, this group did a very intelligent thing. They asked the opinion of the man who had been healed. What sayest thou of him that hath opened thine eyes, they asked, and waited for his answer. As he spoke, the blind man undoubtedly looked directly into their eyes a new and precious privilege. He said plainly, He is a prophet. But that was an unsettling answer. After much discussion, including conversation with the man's parents, the Pharisees agreed to acknowledge that there had indeed been a miracle and that it might have come from God. But this man must deny any role Christ may have played in the process. Then again called they the man that was blind and said to him, Give God the praise. We know that this man, Jesus, is a sinner. Unencumbered by theory or law, the man said slowly enough for everyone to hear, Whether Jesus be a sinner or no, I know not. Just one thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. 
The Pharisees, in total frustration and unable to argue with that single greatest and undeniable fact in the case, cast the man out of their present, their presence. Then comes this sweet conclusion to a story about renewed sight and brighter light. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, he said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Now, sight had been given twice, once to a remedy to, uh, as a remedy for congenital defect, and once to behold the King of Kings before he would ascend his eternal throne. Jesus had quickened both temporal and spiritual vision. He had cast his life into a dark place. And this man, like many others in that day, as well as our own, had accepted the light and had seen. President Spencer W. Kimball taught us with a book by the title Faith Precedes the Miracle. But there is, of course, an increase of faith that should follow the miracle as well. As a result of the many miracles in our lives, we should be more humble and more grateful, more kind and more believing. When we are personal witnesses to these wonders which God performs, it should increase our respect and our love for Him. It should improve the way that we behave. We will live better and love more if we will remember that. We are miracles in our own right, every one of us. And the restored Son of God is the greatest miracle of all. He is indeed the miracle of miracles, and every day of His life He gave evidence of it. We should try to follow after Him in that example. As Moroni quotes his father in the Book of Mormon, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, have miracles ceased because Christ has ascended into heaven? Has the day of miracles ceased? I say unto you, Nay. Neither have angels ceased to minister unto the children of men, nor will they so long as time shall last or the earth shall stand, or there shall be one man upon the face of the earth thereof to be saved. I testify of God's goodness and Christ's power, and the privileged apostles have been given. I know that Peter and John did take a lame man by the right hand, and in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, commanded him to rise up and walk, and he did walk. 
I testify of the restoration of the gospel in these latter days. And the priesthood powers that make possible the many modern miracles of our dispensation. I say of our Father, as the psalmist said, Thou art the God that doest wonders. Thou hast declared Thy strength among the people. In the sacred name of Jesus Christ, amen. One day, as one of my sons bid farewell prior to leaving for high school, I noticed he'd forgotten to tie his shoelaces. For a fleeting second, I was tempted to turn this moment into the major crisis of the week, but thankfully I let it pass. Just a few days later, we went to a school function where, to my amazement, I observed the shoelaces of all the young men were untied. I then realized my son had fallen victim to another fad. I think it was in this same year I found out it was no longer socially acceptable to go to school with boots, gloves, or earmuffs. Sometimes we appear to be enslaved by fads or trends in society. Some are good, some are silly but harmless. Others can be detrimental to our physical or uh, spiritual health. In the Lord's knowledge, He knows that the shortest distance from the world to the celestial kingdom is a straight line. He has restored His gospel, which contains the truth and guidance we need to make the journey just as smooth as possible. We can avoid unnecessary detours by reading the scriptures and learning to follow the Lord's current prophets. As the Church holds firm to the traditional values taught by prophets of previous dispensations, and reaffirmed by our modern-day prophets, the pointing finger of a failing society seems to be regularly aimed at us. One can hardly get through a day without hearing some form of criticism about the Church. I will discuss three groups of critics. In order of ascending concern, they are non-members, former members, and current members. Responsible non-member teasing and criticism is harmless. In fact, it helps keep us on our toes. Occasionally, we need to step back and look at ourselves from a non-member's perspective. Really, to them, aren't we just a little bit strange? Imagine yourself coming into a Mormon community for the first time and hearing talk about gold plates, an angel named Moroni, and baptisms for the dead. Imagine seeing for the first time nine children and two beleaguered parents in a beat-up station wagon with a bumper sticker reading, Families are forever. (laughs) Poor non-member does not know whether this is a boast or a complaint. (laughs) And where do these families go to church? At a steakhouse. We are strange to non-members until they get to know us. My counsel to members would be to relax, lighten up, mellow out, and don't get so huffy. (laughs) While the gospel is sacred and serious, sometimes we take ourselves just a little too seriously. A sense of humor, especially about ourselves, is an attribute worthy of development. Other criticisms we receive from non-members are a little more painful. Criticism always hurts most when we deserve it. 
There are a few active members who don't live up to what they have been taught. They can be condescending, intolerant, or clannish. Such characteristics strike at the very heart of the second great commandment, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. One can be a friend to all without participating in all of their activities. How short-sighted one is to place Church denominational limits on his friendships. How one robs himself when his friendship is contingent upon another's willingness to listen to the first discussion. We would eliminate the most painful criticism from responsible nonmembers by simply internalizing and living what the Church teaches. The second category of critics is former members who have become disenchanted with the Church but obsessed with making vicious and vile attacks upon it. Most members and non-members alike see these attacks for what they really are. What credibility can possibly be given to a person who mocks beliefs held sacred by another? Anyone who would resort to these attacks unwittingly discloses his or her true character or lack of the same. As members of the Church, we are appalled by such attacks. Hopefully, however, it makes us more sensitive and extra careful not to make light of the sacred beliefs of other denominations. In addition to attacking our sacred beliefs, some former members speak evil of the brethren. Joseph Smith received his share of this criticism from the dissidents of his day. The Lord's revelation to him is applicable to us today. Cursed are all those that shall lift up the heel against mine anointed, saith the Lord. And cry they of sin when they have not sinned before me, saith the Lord, but have done that which was meet in mine eyes and which I commanded them. But those who cry transgression do it because they are the servants of sin and are the children of disobedience themselves. It seems history continues to teach us you can leave the Church, but you can't leave it alone. The basic reason for this is simple. Once someone has received a witness of the Spirit and accepted it, he leaves neutral ground. One loses his testimony only by listening to the promptings of the evil one, and Satan's goal is not complete when a person leaves the Church, but when he comes out in open rebellion against it. The last category of criticism I will address comes from within the Church itself. This criticism is more lethal than that coming from non-members and former members. The danger lies not in what may come from a member critic, but that we might become one. One activity which often leads a member to be critical is engaging in inappropriate intellectualism. While it would seem the search for and the discovery of truth should be the goal of all Latter-day Saints, it appears some get more satisfaction from trying to discover new uncertainties. I have friends who have literally spent their lives thus far trying to nail down every single loose intellectual end, rather than accepting the witness of the Spirit and getting on with it. In so doing, they are depriving themselves of a gold mine of beautiful truths which cannot be tapped by the mind alone. Elder Faust has described this type of intellectual as a person who continues to chase after a bus even after he has caught it. We invite everyone to get on the bus before it's out of sight, and you're left forever to figure out the infinite with a finite mind. In the words of Elijah, 
How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. Inappropriate intellectualism sometimes leads one to testify that he knows the gospel is true, but the brethren are just a little out of touch. Out of touch with what? Don't confuse a decision to abstain from participating in a trend as a lack of awareness about its existence. These brethren prove all things and hold fast that which is good. To accomplish this, they are in constant touch with He who created this earth and knows the world from beginning to end. There are some of our members who practice selective obedience. A prophet is not one who displays a smorgasbord of truth from which we are free to pick and choose. However, some members become critical and suggest the prophet should change the menu. A prophet doesn't take a poll to see which way the wind of public opinion is blowing. He reveals the word of the Lord to us. The world is full of deteriorating churches who have succumbed to public opinion and have become more dedicated to tickling the ears of their members than obeying the laws of God. In the early days of the Church, some converts wanted to bring a few of their previous beliefs into the Church with them. Our problem today is with members who seem very vulnerable to the trends in society and the pointing fingers which attend them and want the Church to change its position to accommodate them. The doctrinal grass on the other side of the fence looks very green to them. The Lord's Council in 1931 is relevant today. Behold, I say unto you that they desire to know the truth in part, but not all, for they are not right before me and must needs repent. We need to accept the full truth, even all of it, and put on the whole armor of God and get to work building up the kingdom. Each of us might ask ourselves, Am I a positive contributor to building up the kingdom in our day of this dispensation of the fullness of times? There was a time in my life when I fantasized about how valiant I would have been had I only been born at another time. If I had been born of Adam, I would have saved Cain. If I had been born of Noah, the ark would have had to be larger in order to carry all of my converts. If I had been with Moses, we could have cut the forty years in the wilderness down to twenty. And if I had been with Joseph Smith, we'd still be in Jackson County living the United Order. I had some wonderful fantasies. One time, as I was winning another imaginary battle, a question was placed into my mind. You say you would have died for the prophet Joseph Smith. What are you doing for President Spencer W. Kimball? I was crushed by the answer to that question and made up my mind things were going to be different. Why do we sometimes find it easier to accept and follow past prophets? It is partly because history has proven their counsel to be sound. Future generations will find the same to be true of the prophets of our day. Each of us might ask ourselves, What am I doing for President Ezra Taft Benson? As a presiding bishopric, we work closely with our current prophets, seers, and revelators. Based on that physical observation, as well as a spiritual confirmation, I testify that these men have no desire or goal other than to assist the Lord in His purpose to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. I can also tell you firsthand they are highly intelligent individuals. 
They understand the current problems facing members of the Church throughout the world and are not naive to major issues and trends of society. I testify to you that Ezra Taft Benson is a prophet of God and is surrounded by other special witnesses of the Savior. Jesus the Christ stands at the head of this Church, and He has personally called these servants who preside over us. In the Lord's wisdom, He has not left any of us dependent on another's testimony. May the Lord bless each of us to obtain and retain our personal witness, and then follow the brethren, I pray, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Happiness, in the words of the Prophet Joseph Smith, is the object and design of our existence and will be the end thereof if we pursue the path that leads to it. Often that path includes affliction, trials, and suffering, physically, mentally, and even spiritually. Adversity, or what we perceive to be adversity, enters into the life of every individual at various times and in various forms. Adversity may be the consequence of willful disobedience to the laws of God. However, my remarks are directed to those who, with righteous desire, seek earnestly to learn and strive diligently to do God's will, yet nevertheless experience adversity. Much about this subject we do not understand, but let us consider some of what the Lord has revealed. Adversity in the lives of the obedient and faithful may be the consequence of disease, accidental injury, ignorance, or the influence of the adversary. To preserve free agency, the Lord also at times permits the righteous to suffer the consequences of evil acts by others. Some may respond to such innocent suffering with resentment, anger, bitterness, doubt, or fear. Others, with a knowledge and testimony, of the divine plan of salvation often respond with faith, patience, and a comforting assurance born of that peace that passeth all understanding. The plan of salvation presented to and accepted by us in our premortal state includes a probationary period on earth during which we experience opposites, make choices, learn the consequences thereof, and prepare to return to the presence of God. Experiencing adversity is an essential part of this process. Knowing this, we elected to come into mortality. The Savior Himself learned obedience by the things which He suffered. Prophets and apostles, ancient and modern, have struggled with adversity in their own lives as well as with trials associated with their divine callings. No one is exempt. However, Paul teaches that all things work together for good to them that love God. Similarly, the prophet Lehi assured his son Jacob with these words, Jacob, in thy childhood thou hast suffered afflictions and much sorrow because of others. Nevertheless, thou knowest the greatness of God, and he shall consecrate thine afflictions for thy gain. How then shall we respond to undeserved adversity in our own lives? How may our responses to affliction and suffering draw us closer to the Savior, to our Heavenly Father, and to the realization of our own celestial potential? 
May I suggest some examples and role models found in the scriptures? The sons of Messiah, in the course of their missionary labor, had many afflictions, both in body and in mind, and much labor in the spirit. Partly because of these experiences, they became strong in the knowledge of the truth, men of a sound understanding. They searched the scriptures diligently that they might know the word of God and gave themselves to much prayer and fasting. Therefore, they had the spirit of prophecy and the spirit of revelation. Through their positive response to adversity, they grew spiritually. In the time of Nephi, son of Helaman, when the more humble part of the people suffered much affliction, they fasted and prayed frequently and became stronger in their humility and firmer in the faith of Christ unto the filling of their souls with joy and consolation. From their example, we learn some positive responses to our own undeserved adversity. As they did, we should look to the Savior for divine assistance. Paul reminds us that we have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, who is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. We are invited to seek his help in time of need. Because the Savior suffered pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind, taking upon him the pains and sickness of his people, taking upon him their infirmities, he knows, according to the flesh, how to help his people according to their infirmities. Therefore, we should follow the counsel of Amulek. Let your hearts be drawn out in prayer unto him continually for your welfare and also for the welfare of those who are around you. Next, our prayer should be accompanied with a daily scripture study. The eternal perspective attained thereby reminds us of who we are, the true purpose of this mortal experience, and who placed us here. The availability of divine help is repeatedly reconfirmed. Daily scripture study also makes us continuously conscious of covenants we have made with the Lord and of His promised blessings. As we fulfill our baptismal covenant, we bear one another's burdens that they may be light, and our burdens are lightened. We comfort those that stand in need of comfort, and we receive comfort. When we stand as a witness of God in all things, we feel His redeeming love and see our present circumstances more clearly in the perspective of eternal life. In a sense, we are thereby accepting the Savior's invitation. Come unto me, all ye that are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Is it not probable that bearing his yoke and his burden includes forgetting self in service to others? Patience must also be a part of our response to adversity. Ammon, son of Messiah, recalling personal challenges, acknowledged, Now, when our hearts were depressed and we were about to turn back, or in other words, give up, the Lord comforted us and said, Bear with patience thine afflictions, and I will give you success. In our day, the Lord has counseled, Fear not, let your hearts be comforted. Rejoice evermore, and in everything give thanks, waiting patiently on the Lord, and all things wherewith you have been afflicted shall work together for your good.
Repeated assurances have been given regarding the benefits and blessings of positive responses to adversity, however undeserved. The witness of the Spirit and the manifestation of greater things often follows the trial of one's faith. Spiritual refinement may be realized in the furnace of affliction. Thereby, we may be prepared to experience personal and direct contact with God. In modern revelation, we are instructed, Therefore sanctify yourselves, that your eyes become single to God, and the days will come that you shall see Him, for He will unveil His face unto you, and it shall be in His own time and in His own way and according to His own will. Ancient prophets teach us that when He shall appear, we shall see Him as He is and be purified, even as He is pure. The Lord's own way of preparing us to see Him as He is may well include the refining furnace of affliction, that we may thereby offer a sacrifice to Him of a broken heart and a contrite spirit, the promised reward being peace in this world and eternal life in the world to come. Each of us is the spiritual offspring of God. We came to this earth to prepare to return to His presence and there share a fullness, that is, eternal life. Without adversity, we may tend to forget the divine purpose of mortality and live our lives focused on the transitory things of the world. Therefore, should we therefore desire or seek to experience adversity and suffering? No. May we appropriately try to avoid it? Yes. Is it proper to ask for relief? Yes. Always adding in accordance with the Savior's example, nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. There is encouragement and comfort in knowing that we will not be tested beyond our capacity to endure and to benefit from our adversities, and that the resources and circumstances necessary for us to do so will be provided. From the Book of Mormon comes another illustration. Those with whom Alma shared the inspired teachings of Abinadi entered into the baptismal covenant and began to live the gospel fully. There was no contention among them. They were knit together in unity and in love one toward another, caring for the poor and needy and for one another temporally and spiritually. Because of their industry and the harmony among them, they prospered. Certainly they did not deserve adversity. However, they were provided with the opportunity for further spiritual growth. The spiritual account continues with these words, Nevertheless, the Lord seeth fit to chasten his people, yea, he trieth their patience and their faith. Notwithstanding their righteousness, these faithful people suffered much affliction. Understandably, they pleaded with the Lord for relief, perhaps hoping that the burdens would be removed. In response to their pleadings, the Lord comforted them and assured them of his help. Then he strengthened them that they could bear up their burdens with ease, and they did submit cheerfully and with patience to all the will of the Lord. Eventually, because of their faith and patience, they were delivered from their afflictions, having been thereby further refined spiritually and with increased faith, they poured out their thanks to God. In the final days of the Nephite civilization, the Prophet Mormon wrote a letter to his son Moroni describing the wickedness, cruelty, and depravity which caused innocent people to suffer. Then he added these words of admonition and comfort, My son, be faithful in Christ. 
And may not the things which I have written grieve thee to weigh thee down, but may Christ lift thee up. And may his sufferings and death, his mercy, and the hope of his glory and of eternal life rest in your mind forever. And may the grace of God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ be and abide with you forever. Which is also my prayer for each of us. In the sacred name of Jesus Christ, amen. Over the past number of weeks, I've had some conversation that have made me ponder upon the meaning of the word worthy. As I recently talked to a young 20-year-old man, I discussed his attitude about going on a mission. He said, I wanted to go, but I am not worthy. Who made that judgment, I asked. I did, was his answer. On another occasion, I asked a young lady who was contemplating marriage if she was going to the temple. She said, I would like to, but I am not worthy. In response to the same question of who determined her unworthiness, she said, I did. A member mother who had known for many weeks that her daughter had planned a temple marriage was asked if she was going to attend the temple ceremony. No, I am not worthy to get a temple recommend, she answered. Each of these people seemed to have made his own determination about worthiness. We do not have to be hindered by self-judgment. All of us have the benefit and added wisdom of a bishop and a stake president to help us determine our worthiness and, if necessary, to assist us to begin the process of becoming worthy to accomplish whatever goal we may wish to achieve. When we take it upon ourselves to pass self-judgment and simply declare, I am not worthy, we build a barrier to progress and erect blockades that prevent our moving forward. We are not being fair when we judge ourselves. A second and third opinion will always be helpful and proper. It occurs to me that there are probably hundreds or even thousands who do not understand what worthy is. Worthiness is a process, and perfection is an eternal trick. We can be worthy to enjoy certain privileges without being perfect. Perhaps it is reasonable to conclude that our personal measurement or judgment oftentimes may be severe and inaccurate. We may be bogged down as we try to understand and define worthiness. All of us are particularly aware of our shortcomings and weaknesses. Therefore, it is easy for us to feel that we are unworthy of blessings we desire and that we are not as worthy to hold an office or a calling as someone next door. All through life we meet up with some people who tell of their weaknesses with great enthusiasm and with unreasonable prejudice. They may not report untruths, but they may leave out truths, or they may not be fair with themselves. Misjudgments can be made. 
To move forward wisely and think clearly, all sides of a story must be reviewed. When we feel inadequate, capable and loving friends can help us realize our strengths and potential. When counseling, I have always tried to get the facts. Oftentimes, those being interviewed resist sharing some of the facts because they make them uncomfortable. Worthy and lasting changes can only be made when actions are based upon the light of truth. Very often, people become comfortable in their self-declared unworthiness status. Possibly the hardest guidelines for us to follow are those that we set for ourselves. To analyze our fears, our dreams, our goals, our motives can be soul-wrenching. We need others to help us. We may find that we fear failure so much that we won't take a risk. Oftentimes, our self-esteem is bruised by criticism. Many other facts about ourselves can be brought to light if we really want to know. Perhaps we all live under some misconceptions when we look at each other on Sundays as we attend our meetings. Everyone is neatly dressed and greets each other with a smile. It is natural to assume that everyone else has his life under control and doesn't have to deal with dark little weaknesses and imperfections. There is a natural, probably a mortal, tendency to compare ourselves with others. Unfortunately, when we make these comparisons, we tend to compare our weakest attributes with someone else's strongest. For example, a woman who feels unschooled in the gospel may take particular note of a woman in her ward who teaches the gospel doctrine class and seems to have every scripture at her fingertips. Obviously, these kind of comparisons are destructive and only reinforce the fear that somehow we don't measure up and therefore we must not be as worthy as the next person. We need to come to terms with our desire to reach perfection and our frustrations when our accomplishments or behaviors are less than perfect. I feel that one of the greatest myths we do well to dispel is that we've come to earth to perfect ourselves, and nothing short of that will do. If I understand the teachings of the prophets of this dispensation correctly, we will not become perfect in this life, though we can make significant strides toward that goal. Joseph Fielding Smith offers this counsel. Salvation does not come all at once. We are commanded to be perfect, even as our Father in Heaven is perfect. It will take us ages to accomplish this end, for there will be a greater progress beyond the grave, and it will be there that the faithful will overcome all things and receive all things, even the fullness of the Father's glory. I believe that the Lord meant just what He said, that we should be perfect as our Father in Heaven is perfect. Hilda Fielding Smith continues with, That will not come all at once, but line upon line, precept upon precept, example upon example, and even then, not as long as we live in this mortal life, for we will have to go beyond the grave before we reach the perfection and shall be like God. Close quote.
I am also convinced of the fact that the speed with which we head along the straight and narrow path isn't as important as the direction in which we are traveling. That direction, if it is leading toward eternal goals, is the all-important factor. Another quotation that comes from George Q. Cannon is very meaningful to me. Quote, Now this is the truth. We humble people, we who feel ourselves sometimes so worthless, so good for nothing, we are not so worthless as we think. There is not one of us but what God loves and has expanded his love upon us. There is not one of us that he has not cared for and caressed. There is not one of us that he has not desired to save and that he has not divided means to save. There is not one of us that he has not given angels charge concerning us. We may be insignificant and contemptible in our own eyes but in the, and in the eyes of others, but the truth remains that we are children of God and that he has actually given his angels charge concerning us, and they watch over us and have us in their keeping." Close quote. If we are in the keeping of angels, God is certainly telling us that we are worthy to be watched over, helped, and directed by him. As we become aware of God's watch care and we turn to the Church leaders to help us learn how to become worthy members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we learn that we can reach that status of worthiness for each goal upon life's path. Yet we must strive for worthiness. In the official proclamation number two accepted by the Church on September the 30th, 1978, We are reminded that certain privileges have worthiness as a prerequisite. In this official declaration, the word worthy or worthiness is used six times. It leaves little doubt as to the importance of being worthy if specific blessings are to be available to us. As we said in the beginning, It is a wonderful strength and a needful process to be able to go to a bishop or a stake president and discuss our worthiness. Such an interview may be determined on how worthy we are as we achieve and need self-improvement. President N. Eldon Tanner gave some wise counsel. With all of the evils present in the world today, it is most important that those who are responsible conduct proper interviews. Let us remember that our main purpose, assignment, and responsibility is to save souls. It is important that those we interview realize that they are spirit children of God and that we love them and let them know that we love them and are interested in their welfare and in helping them succeed. He continues with, It is a great responsibility for a bishop or state president to conduct a worthiness interview. There is equal responsibility, however, upon the member who was interviewed. Careful searching interviews need to be conducted always individually and privately. Let the member know that if there is something amiss in his life, there are ways to straighten it out. There is a great cleansing power of repentance. 
you bishops and state presidents might interview an interviewee for a temple recommend, something like this. You have come to me for a recommend to enter the temple. I have the responsibility of representing the Lord in interviewing you. At the conclusion of the interview, there is a provision for me to sign your recommend. But mine is not the only important signature on your recommend. Before the recommend is valid, you must sign it yourself. And so it is. The Lord gives the privilege to members of the Church to respond to those questions in such interviews. Then, if there is something amiss, the member can get his life in order so that he may qualify for priesthood advancement, a mission, or for a temple recommend." As we strive for worthiness, a scripture we should not lose sight of is Doctrine and Covenants, section 136, verse 31. He who will not bear chastisement is not worthy of the Lord's kingdom. Sometimes there is a great need for us to be chastened, disciplined, and corrected in the spirit of love, help, and hope. Guidance and suggestions should be offered in a loving way, but most of us have a tendency to rebel or be dismayed when someone suggests that our conduct is less than it should be. As Benjamin Franklin once said, those things that hurt instruct It is for this reason that wise people learn not to dread, but to welcome problems." In life, there are requirements for almost all privileges. Education demands them. Business has its regulations. Sports and games have their rules. In the Church, we need to live by certain standards, and so on. But in every case, there is help to meet those requirements. It is up to us to look for that assistance so we can understand the rules and strengthen ourselves as we receive direction from the sources available. It is not wise or proper for us to judge ourselves as being unworthy and thus stop our forward progress. When we dwell on our weaknesses, it is easy to dwell on the feelings that we are unworthy. Somehow we need to bridge the gap between continually striving to improve and yet not feeling defeated when our actions aren't perfect all the time. We need to remove unworthy from our vocabulary and replace it with hope and work. This we can do if we turn to quieter, deeper, and surer guidelines, the words of our prophets and leaders past and present. Abraham Lincoln wisely said, It is difficult to make a man miserable while he feels he is worthy of himself and claims kindred to the great God who made him. To reinforce the importance of the word worthy and worthy processes, I'd like to share part of a poem by Elder Hugh B. Brown, I Would Be Worthy. I thank thee, Lord, that thou hast called me son and fired my soul with the astounding thought that there is something of thee in me. May the prophecy of this relationship impel me to be worthy. I am grateful for a covenant birth, for noble parents and an ancestry who beckoned me to heights beyond my grasp, but still attainable. 
if with stamina and effort I cultivate their seed and prove that I am worthy. I am grateful for a companion on this eternal quest whose roots and birth and vision match my own, whose never-failing faith and loyalty have furnished light in darkness and re-steeled fortitude. May her faith in me inspire me to be worthy. I am grateful for the cleansing power of parenthood with its self-denial and sacrifice, prerequisites to filial and parent love. For each child entrusted to our care, I humbly thank thee. If I would associate with them eternally, I know I must be worthy. I am grateful for the lifting power of the gospel of thy Son, for the knowledge thou hast given me of its beauty, truth, and worth. To attain its promised glory may I to the end endure, and then forgiven, let charity tip the scales and allow me to be considered worthy. It is my hope and prayer that we will learn individually and collectively the importance of the process of becoming worthy. We are entitled to the help of others in not only assessing our worthiness, but also in making the classification of worthy available to each of us. As we measure our worthiness, let us no longer put limitations upon ourselves. Rather, let us use those strengths and powers that are available to make us worthy to gain great heights in personal development. Thus, we will reap the joy that comes to those who desire to improve, move forward with determination and effectiveness as they practice self-discipline and refuse to judge themselves as unworthy. I leave my love, blessings, and testimony that these truths are proper and right in the worthy name of Jesus Christ. Amen.